Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 7 of the Book of Daniel. Eschatology is the study of the end, with a capital E, the times when Mashiach will come. Our Mashiach, of course, is not a miracle worker or even a prophet. He is a descendant of King David who will uh, be anointed, or Mashuach with oil. He will lead Israel and unite Israel and bring in, well, bring in the Messianic Age. That time is also called the Kates, the end, um, which essentially ends one phase of human history. An eschatological prophecy, therefore, envisions those times, and those prophecies tend to have common phrases, motifs, and themes. They often describe earthquakes from whose broken earth flows eternal springs. They describe great wars. They describe God revealing his hand in human history. And uh, these days are often referred to as days of the Lord or on that very day. Um, Very often nature changes. For instance, lions, a pasture with lambs. Uh, The sun shines sevenfold in its brightness, etc., etc., Even though eschatological prophecies are often referred to as apocalyptic or apocalyptic prophecies, none of this is at all apocalyptic. An apocalypse is a revelation of that which is concealed. Its hallmark, that is the way to distinguish an apocalypse or an apocalyptic vision, is that its recipient has no idea what he's seeing. In non-apocalyptic eschatologies... The prophet understands all the images that he's shown, as plain as day. True, we don't know whether the image of the lion pasturing with the lamb is literal, meaning an actual change to nature (coughs) during messianic times, or if it's a metaphor that aggressive and passive nations will dwell together peacefully, as the Rambam says. But the prophet understood everything that he was seeing. In contrast, in an apocalyptic vision, the prophet is not aware of what he is seeing. For instance, in the apocalyptic vision of uh, Zechariah, chapter 6, when he is shown uh, four riders or four chariots, he says to an accompanying angel, Ma'ele Adonai. And the angel, which means, you know, what what is this? What am I seeing? And the angel must explain to him what the meaning is. The images of an apocalypse, which stand in for something else, they represent, they need to be translated like a riddle, <clears throat> cannot be comprehended in and of themselves. And certainly, that, that sometimes the very images aren't, aren't comprehensible, and certainly not the things that they're actually standing in for. The visions that Nebuchadnezzar had in, the, in uh, two of our previous chapters were, in fact, apocalyptic. But they weren't necessarily eschatological. They didn't necessarily talk about Messianic times, just they were uh, unclear. They were hidden. So Daniel, as a revealer of mysteries, has to come to interpret, to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar what it means. It shouldn't be surprising, of course, that eschatology and the apocalyptic very often mix together. Why? Because the Messianic times are going to be so different from ours that the images that are shown to the prophets concealing it may be very incomprehensible, as they are here to Daniel. Or, as in Greek, they are kaluptos, uh, which is concealed, and they need to be apokalyptos, which means revealed. So, from chapter 7 on in this book, Daniel is essentially unable to interpret his own visions without angelic help. They are apocalyptic visions. Which brings us to the next issue. Is Daniel a prophet? Are these visions prophecies, or are they somewhat less than so? So, Ibn Ezra, Rav Sajigon, Abarvanel, and others say, yes, that he was a prophet. 
the Rambam says no, he was not a prophet, which according to the Rambam explains why this book is in Ketuvim, in the third section of Tanakh, rather than in Nevi'im. The Abarvanel disagrees with the Rambam's categorization that everything in Ketuvim is merely inspired literature rather than full-fledged prophecy, but obviously there's some dispute on the matter. There is a well-known passage in the Talmud, Tractate Megillah, uh, which talks, uh, which essentially asserts that Daniel was lesser than the prophets Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, in that he was not a prophet, a full-fledged prophet, but he was greater than them because they were more. He was more finely attuned to the supernatural than they. they were, he was able to perceive things that they were not able to perceive that were going on in the metaphysical world. Um, of course, these visions that we're about to see are both apocalyptic and eschatological. Uh, they deal with the end of days. Um, and, and because that's true, we want to know, or we're curious to know, at what spiritual level Daniel has reached. If they're prophecy, then we might examine them with a fine-tooth comb over and over again, looking for some clue as to when those eschatological messianic days are coming. If they are only inspired visions, one might be less likely to look for definitive answers while still being inspired or directed by their, uh, by the visions and their message. Bishnat Chada Level Shatzar Melech Bavel Daniel Chaleim Chaza V'chazvei Reshei Al Mishkavei Beidayin Chalmak Tav Reish Milin Amar In the first year of Balthazar's uh, rule, uh, the, the Balthazar, the king of Bavel, Daniel saw a dream and had visions in his head while on his bed. Then he wrote the dream, he spoke opening words. Notice that we have gone back in time, uh, earlier than chapter 5, which took place at the end of Balthazar's rule. Uh, this signals that we have entered a distinctive, a part 2 of this book. Up to now, Daniel has been interpreting the apocalypses of the Babylonian kings although not every chapter dealt with visions. There were educational stories as well. Now it is Daniel who is having apocalyptic visions and who cannot interpret his own dreams, and they require interpretation or visions. That these visions begin during the first year of Balthazar is significant, since it is in that year that Cyrus defeated the Median king, the king of Mede, uh, Astyages, or Astyages, prompting Balthazar's father, Nabonidus, to take a 10-year vacation in the Arabian oasis of Tema. The defeat, that defeat, uh, Cyrus's defeat of, uh, of the Medes, was seen as the beginning of the end of Babylonian domination, which would fall to Persia. Once the Babylonian Empire is falling, which means the first year of Balthazar's rule, then the information of what will follow, the history that will follow, becomes very important to the Jewish people. The expression, uh, by the way, Rosh Milin, is very difficult, some say that it means that he wrote down the whole vision, but here speaks just the main points, like the chapter headers. However, um, in the final verse, it reads, Ad ko sofa de milta, until here, the end of words. So this seems to simply be um, a literary device which marks off the beginning bookend as opposed to the end bookend. Um, Daniel stated, literally it says he responded and said, but as I mentioned before, this is just an expression meaning the speaker is making a strong, a definitive statement. And I have seen in a night vision, and behold, four heavenly winds 
striking the great sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea. Daniel's vision, therefore, is in Israel. He's standing on the coast. And this indicates that these visions are meaningful for the Jewish people. The end of Babylonian domination means the return of Jewish autonomy and even independence and even statehood, which began to happen after Cyrus the Great conquered uh, Babylonia ten years after this vision is taking place. The four winds probably mean uh, the um, uh, powerful uh, forces that are uh, going to affect all of the earth, all four corners of the earth. Uh, and it also, the idea of the four winds also uh, it fits very nicely into our book's constant grouping of things into sets of four, including instruments, soothsayers, clothes, kings, statues, the whole thing. Then four great beasts rose up from the sea, each one different from the other. These four beasts will not be identified, other than they are four distinct kingdoms. Uh, however, based on some similarities to things that are already identified in our book and things that will be identified in our book, uh, on descriptions from previous chapters, in future chapters we should be able to make some educated guesses as to which empires these four beasts represent. Verse 4 begins the parade of the four. The first one was like a lion with wings like a vulture. While I was watching, the wings were plucked and it was taken from the ground and was stood up on its legs like a man and a human mind was given to it. The language is similar to Nebuchadnezzar's bout of insanity and recovery. He was given an animal's mind and then a human mind was returned to him, which was described in chapter 4. Uh, there, by the way, his hair was described as a uh, like a, a mane of bird's feathers until human intelligence was returned to him. So this seems almost surely to represent the uh, Babylonian Empire as embodied by its a, a, iconic king, Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, the image also matches uh, um, what we've dug, dug up uh, archaeologically in the city of Babylon, which are these reliefs of winged lions which adorn the walls of his city. Even Ezra says that the meaning of the plucking up of the plucking of the wings and the removal of the ground indicates that the Babylonian Empire is about to be removed from the earth, is about to be lost. Va'aru and behold, another second beast with the appearance of a bear raised up to one side and with three ribs and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth just like they would say to it, eat a lot of meat. Eat lots and lots and lots of meat. Um, it's not clear what the phrase raised up to one side literally means. Um, that is, what does it mean when we're looking at this bear? Uh, and, and if we can't tell exactly what it, what it literally means in the image, it's difficult to tell what it indicates on the... Uh, um, on the when the apocalypse is given, that is, when we are reveal what is hidden. Um, it could mean that it reared up only half of its body, uh, it could mean that it was rearing up against something, perhaps the lion before it, but uh, and it only, uh, but only in one direction. That is, it wasn't strong enough to rear up in multiple directions, or perhaps it was deformed in some way, like its body was lifted up on one side. The three il in in its mouth, I translated as ribs, with a switch uh, of the first ayin for tzadi. So selah, the Hebrew rib, becomes ili or ilah. 
but um, but what this means is never resolved. That is, who who this beast represents, we don't know, and who the ribs represent, and what the standing on one side represents. However, we might uh, speculate that it's the Median Empire, which, um, from our book's perspective, had only one significant king, Darius the Mede, and uh, and had voracious appetites, which we saw in the partying phase. Uh, even though that was Balthazar, it was, as I showed at that time, um, Balthazar mimicking the uh, Persians and the Medians and the way that they lived and partied and drank, etc. Um, and it could be the way that the three ribs might indicate that they destroyed three kings of Babylon, since the Tanakh only really talks about three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, his son Evil Merodach, and uh, Balthazar. So... Um, uh, another possibility, however, is that the Ilain means fangs. That's a possible translation of Ilain. And in that case, um, it would keep keep in line with the deformity of the rest of the beast, because otherwise this 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 bear is not really deformed. Um, and it might indicate that uh, not that it destroyed three monarchs, but it had three monarchs of itself. So it's really hard to tell. And after that one, I looked and behold another one like a leopard, which was like a leopard, which had four uh, bird wings on its back, and the beast had four heads, and it was given dominion. Um, this is similar to the third element of the statue, which uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed um, in chapter 2, because that was made out of bronze and it was given rulership, just like this one is given rulership to. Um, however, this one is not uh, is not bronze. Um, and as I said, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 was being was told about kingdoms. He was just talking about the kings of Babylon that would follow him. But, you know, it, it's hard to say for sure. Again, all of this is educated speculation. The book provides no answers, neither there nor in this chapter. Uh, many commentators say that this is Greece and that the bear was the combined Median Persian Empire and that the fourth creature will be Rome. But again, it's it's really impossible to say for sure. Batar dina chazei haveit bechezvei leiliyah va'aru cheva reviyah dechila ve'imtani v'takifa yatira v'shinayin difarzel lah rav revan achla u'madeka u'sha'ara b'ragla rafasa after this one, I saw a night vision. Now, it's not clear why he's repeating that he saw a night vision. It could be that it's a brand new night um, that continues the vision. Uh, that is, this is the second night that Daniel is seeing this continued vision. Or it could mean that he's just repeating it because he, he's so shocked by what he's described that he's repeating the fact that uh, that it is a night vision. Anyway, let's get back to this fourth beast. And behold, a fourth frightening beast, terrifying and exceedingly powerful, with great teeth of iron, devouring and grinding and then trampling the remains uh, that fell out of its mouth, that is, with its feet. And it was different than all the beasts which had preceded it, in that it had ten horns. Um, it was different, of course, not only because of the horns, as we'll see, which are very strange, but because the creature resembles no living beast. Daniel does not attempt to compare it to any living uh, creature. Um, but we'll see that what really sets it apart are these horns. In addition, when revealed, these horns are different in the fact that they kind of zoom in. They go past the overall empire view to focus in on the individual kings, and that's new as well. The identity of this creature is never revealed. However, since 
since there are horns in the next chapter, chapter 8, which are specifically identified as coming from a Greek creature, um, these horns seem to be, so it, one could argue that these horns are Greek kings as well, and we will see they'll culminate, culminate in a terrible horn, which uh, might be Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Of course, if you're commenting from the far side of history, that is, after the destruction of the Second Temple, then it was the devastation wrought by Rome, which was incalculably more horrible than what Antiochus did. So you might come to a different interpretation of what this fourth creature is. Uh, Ebenezer saw the horns as meaning Islam, because during his time, the enlightened Muslim rule in Spain, which the Jews put so much uh, stock in, um, was destroyed, along with all the Jewish communities, by the fanatic al-Muahadin, the uh, Almohades. Uh, even in Ezra, Ezra and some others escaped into Christian lands of 1140, so from his perspective, it was the rising tide of Islam, which was this fourth horrible uh, beast. Um, I would just say that, that it's important to remember that human history is cyclical. Um, it's called Masa Vosiman Lebanim, which means the best of prophecies they focus on the cyclical nature, and and the, therefore the the prophecies are eternal. They they are able to predict more than one single cycle of the future. For instance, uh, Isaiah's prophecies in the first thirty nine chapters of his book are surely there's no question that they're a response to the Assyrian invasion and the hopeful um, uh, messianism that was arising under King Chizkiyahu, uh, who was seen to uh, to to be seen as a messiah. When salvation did not usher in the messianic times, uh, that is, uh, Jerusalem survived, but no messianic times came in, uh, so then the words of, of Isaiah were reapplied to future messianic times, because essentially the same events happen over and over again. Messianic times are always preceded by similar events. And I'm, I'm not just talking about a metaphysical idea here. If you look at the physical, natural history, wars are often preceded by similar economic and social conditions. Human nature and response to those conditions are predictable and therefore cyclical. Or as, uh, as Santiana said, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So, Daniel and the inspired authors of this book saw something that was meaningful to them. Uh, maybe it was the Greeks, but in the end, there's no identification made here. So, therefore, we as a people will simply have to wait and see how it turns out. We'll have to see um, to whom Daniel is actually referring to. Mistakal silkat Utslat min karnaya kadamayata et akara min kadama va'alu ainin ka'inei anasha bekarna da ufum mimalil ravravan. I looked closely at the horns and there was another small horn that arose amongst them and three of the earlier horns, so that is three of the ten, were uprooted from it, that is in front of it, meaning like uh, the way an adult tooth comes up and knocks out baby teeth. And on this horn there were eyes like people's eyes and it had the mouth, it had a mouth that was speaking haughtily or perhaps arrogantly. Um, Perhaps the sense of uh, of eyes of an anusha of peoples means that it had a common man's eyes. It had the perspective of the hoi polloi, the masses, rather than a more mature royal perspective. And this arrogant little horn had apparently taken down three of its own uh, kings, perhaps in a contest over the throne. Now, 
in verse 9, the image shifts to a heavenly court, although the court seems to have come down to Israel, that is, it's on the land or close to it, in response to these four beasts. Now, we'll see that Daniel actually skips some events. He skips part of the vision, which he'll fill in, he'll fill us in about later. I kept looking until seats were thrown, and one who was ancient in days, Natik Yomin, sat, uh, or was seated, his clothes were white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool, his seat was streaming fire, and its wheels were like burning, or were burning fire. The word talag with a switch of tuff and shin is like the Hebrew sheleg, and amar with a switch of ayin and sadig is like semer. Uh, the image, of course, here is similar to Ezekiel's, Yechezkel's, uh vision of the chariots of fire. Uh, so the obvious identification for this ancient one, for this Atik Yomin, is God. Uh, one commentator actually offers that it's not God, that it's the angel Michael. But I think that the reason why he does this is not because he doesn't actually believe it's God, but because he's trying to avoid the anthropomorphization uh, of God, which was very common in Christian icon, uh, 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 iconography, the idea of this uh, old man dressed in white with the white hair and stuff like that. The word remive is a little difficult uh, regarding ha- what happens to the seats because usually it's it's to be thrown in a negative sense, like we say in the song of the sea, Shiratayam, Susvirachvo Ramavayam. They were thrown into the sea in a negative sense. So some say that these are the chairs of the beast representing their empires, their thrones, and that they would be thrown the thrones spelled differently or thrones spelled differently down. Um, Rashi says that uh, that it has a positive sense in this case, and that there were specifically two seats, not just many seats, and these res- uh, represented two aspects of God's judgment, since essentially we're about to enter a court scene. Nahar dinur nageid v'nafek min kadamohi elef alafim yisham shunei avribori rivan kadamohi yikumon dina yitiv v'sifrina petichu. A uh, river of fire was drawn out and went out before him, that is, before the Atik Yomin, and there were thousands upon thousands, or perhaps a thousand times a thousand attendants, and ten thousands upon ten thousand standing before him, whether as an army or whether in judgment is not clear, and the court sat and the books were opened. Um, there, I think, is both the sense of a court as well as heavenly armies at the ready. Thereupon, I saw, as a result of the sound of those haughty words that that horn was speaking, I watched until the beast was killed, that is, the beast on whom the horn was on top of its head, and its body was destroyed and thrown into a burning fire. Usha'ar chevata ha'ediv shaltan ahon and while the other beasts lost their dominion, had their dominion uh, stripped from them, an extended life was given to them until a designated time. Perhaps this means that um, while they lost their empire, the empires disintegrated, their essential cultures uh, and national identities remained and survived. 
um, as opposed to the fourth beast, which uh, left essentially no remains, or will leave no remains. Then I saw in a night vision, and again, it's not clear if this is now a third night that Daniel is extending his vision, or if this new event is so surprising that, again, it it triggers a repeated reference that it's fact of a night vision. And behold, from the clouds and the skies came something that was like a human being, a bar, or like a ben, a bar is like ben, ben anash, like a human being. And it came towards the Ancient One and was... and was brought before him, him with a capital H. And to it, that is this human-like figure that came from the clouds, was given dominion and honor and kingship and all the people and nations and language groups worshipped it and its rule was an eternal rule that would not be stripped and whose kingship would never be destroyed. This is clearly messianic uh, and recalls Isaiah's prophecies where Jerusalem is the home of prayer for all the nations to come to. Um, that's the end of the vision, minus a few details which we'll see are added later. So at this point, Daniel is very sorely affected by his uh, vision, not only because it's horrible, but because he, he doesn't know what it means. It needs to be interpreted. So in verse 15, he asks for interpretation. Uh, My spirit was troubled in its sheath, like a sword sheath, and I, Daniel, the visions in my head, the vision in my head distressed me. The word etzkiriat is unique, but the sense is understood uh, from context. He was very shaken up. Um, the idea of the body as a sheath for the soul is stated actually very early in the Torah, in Genesis chapter 6, where God says, Lo yadun ruchi ba'adam la'olam, my spirit will not be sheathed in man eternally, whereupon God shortens the limit of human life. Obviously, my translation of Yivahaluni is distressed, maybe a, a bit too weak. I think he's a, a bit more than just distressed here. Um, but probably, you know, saying freaking out would be, uh, you know, a, a little bit anachronistic and a poor translation. Kirvet al chad min kamaya v'yatsiva evei minei al koldena v'amarli upshar milaya yehod einani. So I approached one of the attendees, that is one of those thousands upon thousands that were standing before God, which obviously are the God's angels, and I asked the truth from him about all of this, and he said to me and interpreted for me all of the following things. This next verse, verse 17, is either the angel speaking, but uh, actually probably it's really Daniel quoting the angel speaking. So he tells him, the great beasts, which are four, are actually four kings or four kingdoms that will arise from the land, meaning they will arise from their local countries to dominate the world. And who was that uh, that uh, last uh, 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 human-like figure which came from the clouds? Um, as follows. But then the holy ones on high, meaning the angels and the host of, of heavenly things, will receive the kingdom and they will inherit the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. The holy ones on high are, again, God's attendants. 
uh, although obviously they are just the representatives. It's the pro- proxy, uh, it's their proxies. It's the Israelite nation centralized in Jerusalem around the Messianic king, uh, descendant of King David, uh, but also extending throughout the entire world, which will come and take an eternal rule. Uh, but there's a bump in the road before that takes place. Let's get to the bump in verse 19. Then I wanted to have the truth about the fourth beast that was different from all the others, who was exceptionally frightening, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze grinding and then trampling the remains underfoot. Once again, as as in, if you remember, in chapter 4, we had a cable that held down the roots of the tree. We had a com- we have here a combination of iron and bronze, the teeth and the claws. Although for some reason, when Daniel was mentioning it before, he only mentioned the uh, the teeth of iron. He didn't mention the bronze claws. Uh, so once again, we have this combined uh, uh, substance of iron and bronze, although just like there, it's not specifically uh, mentioned whether it means uh, a specific thing or whether it just means to say that it was very powerful. And Daniel also asked for the truth of the following, the ten horns on its head, and the subsequent one that arose, dislodging three horns before it, and one with eyes and a mouth speaking haughtily or arrogantly, and whose appearance was greater than its companions, meaning either the beast was greater than the other beast, which is true, or that the little horn became greater, it grew eventually greater than all the others, remember it replaced three, but it grew greater than all of the ones that the ten that came before it. Um, the event he now describes, essentially he skipped above in the first relation of, of the imagery. Um, apparently it took place between verse 8 and verse 9. Um, why skip it? Perhaps he was not able to not only understand what it meant, but even understand what he was looking at, because it was such a horrible thing uh, that we're about to see now, and he needs the angel's help to help him with even understanding what it is that he's looking at. So let's take a look along with him. I washed, and this horn made battle with the holy ones and bested them. Until the ancient one, the Atik Yomim, came and brought justice to the holy ones and the designated time came and the holy ones inherited kingship. It's amazing. This little horn was able to defeat angels. Kain Amar Chebata Reviata Malchu Revia Tehevi Baara Ditishname and Kol Malchavata Vitechul Kol Ara Udushune Vitad Ki Ne. So this he that is the angel the angelic interpreter says he's translating what this fourth beast and its horns are all about. This fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will be on the land which will be different than all the other kingdoms in that it will devour the earth. It will trample it up and it will grind it down. Vikarnaya asar mina malchuta asra malchini kumun v'achrani kum acharehon v'hu yishnei min kadamayai utzlata malchini hashpiel and its ten horns 
ten kings, or maybe kingdoms, but probably kings, will arise from it, and after them will be another, and it, or he, will be different from its predecessors, that is the one that arises afterwards, and he will topple the the kings. Now, while the angel explains the political ramification, the specific identities of all of these horns and all of these animals, these beasts, are is not revealed. And this keeps in line, this is in line with the book's overall policy, because up to now, very few specific identifications of any visions have, have been, uh, of the parts of visions have been made. In chapter 2, the gold head of the statue was identified as Nebuchadnezzar, but it was his dream. Same thing with the tree in chapter 4, it was his dream. In chapter 5, part of the writing, the mysterious writing on the wall, was identified as the coming of Persia, but that was in the final years of the Babylonian kingdom when the Persians were actually already coming. Um, in contrast, um, specific identifications for future kings and future events appear to be off limit. For instance, in the statue, we are never told uh, what the uh, what the silver, who the silver is. We're told what it means, but not who the silver is, nor the bronze, nor the clay, the terracotta and iron mixture. Um, most modern commentators, since there's no direct identification, identify, and, and some medieval ones as well, some traditional Jewish medieval commentators, identify this crazy little horn, this arrogant little horn, as Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, and that the attacks against the angels represent his outlawing, uh, his outlawing of Jewish law and his defiling of the second uh, temple. Um, as I said, that's based on similarities to the horn in the next chapter, which is specifically identified as coming from a Greek, uh, uh, an animal which is, which is identified as Greek. Um, especially there in chapter in the next chapter, chapter eight, there's this breakup of single great horn, which almost certainly uh, means Alexander the Great. However, the description of that horn and this horn is not identical, not completely identical. Um, and if you're a Jewish commentator looking at it after the destruction of the Second Temple, then you have to realize first of all that the Jewish kingdom that arose after Antiochus Epiphanes, which here is described as being eternal, and that ki- those kingdoms were Hashmonaim, and then after them Herod's kingdom, they didn't last forever. Um, and, 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 and in fact, the, the Roman and Islam rules were much more vicious than, uh, and horrible than the Greek ones. Um, so therefore, it's possible that the last creature is Rome or Islam, and that's why they choose different things. And I just want to repeat what I said before, which is that messianic ages sometimes come very near to being ushered in, uh, maybe the Chashmonai were supposed to be messianic things, but uh, as we know, they weren't the children of David. So the rabbis say that their big mistake was not uh, uh, after they took control to then pass it over to the Davidic family. So sometimes Messiah comes very close and then we lose it. And then what we have to do is wait again for the cycle to repeat itself. So therefore, identifying any specific king is unwise since essentially it could be any series of kings that fit the bill or kingdoms or, or events or histories that fit the bill. Anyway, let's get back to our crazy, arrogant little horn, our maniac king. Verse 25. And it will speak words towards the Most High, that is blasphemy and arrogance and haughtiness and hubris, and it will it will wear down, it will destroy some of the high holy ones, it literally of the high holy ones. 
um, and of course their earthly proxies is what it means, and it will plan to change times and rules, meaning that it will attempt to alter the very movement of the heavenly bodies that demarcate the times and the seasons. But again, don't forget the meaning level of the of the apocalypse. That is not just the the uh, hidden things, but what's revealed, which is that it will that it will probably try to change the holidays and religious practices of the holidays. Um, Many people think that this has to do with the dispute over the solar versus the lunar calendar uh, that took place um, about in the first century of the Common Era, or the second century of the Common Era. But to be honest, that really does, doesn't fit. What really fits here is, is it doesn't fit the words at all, and it doesn't seem to be the intent of this book. Um, and uh, what really is going on here is whether the religion practices of holidays would be uh, stripped. Getting back to the verse, and all of this will be given into its hand, meaning it will. This little crazy little uh, arrogant horn will be successful for for idan the idanin uplag idan for a time, and then for times, and then for a half a time. Now, many scholars think that this is a code for three and a half years, one time, two times, and a half a time, and that it fits with Antiochus's, the fourth's anti-religious edicts, which lasted a bit more than three years, as described in the book of Maccabees, both Maccabees 1 and 2. But the truth is, a time, an edan, needs not be a single year, and by combining this data with the numbers in the coming chapters, one can make it work out pretty much any way you want. Uh, various commentators come up with all kinds of different descriptions of when the end is coming and when the when the uh, the holy uh, kingdom will take over the world forever and ever. So it's probably, in my opinion, best to heed the words of the Rambam at the end of his Mishnah Torah, Yad Chazakah, where he says that, you know when we'll find out what it all means? We'll find out when we find out, when it actually takes place. And he warns us that ignoring the fundamental aspects and religious requirements of Judaism in single-minded attempts to calculate when Mashiach is coming does not make one God-fearing or religious. It does not improve one religiously. Interestingly, Rashi uses all of this data to calculate the eschaton, the end of days and Messianic times, to about 300 years after his death, which is much farther relative to the date that he's writing the commentary than most other commentaries write. Most other commentaries keep it very close, within usually a generation. So most commentators, or some commentators, think that, that Rashi, that is later commentators think that Rashi is putting the number so far out in order to discourage his students from sitting around waiting for the end of days because it was very tempting considering the horrible uh, times that they were living under. At the end of this spe- uh, specified time, whatever, however long it is, this Idan, Idanin, and Chati Idan, then Vedina Yitiv Sofa. The, the court case will be seated, and his, that is this anti-holy crusader, this crazy, arrogant little horn, his rule will be stripped for destruction and complete annihilation. And the kingdom and dominion uh, greater than all of the kingdoms under all of the heavens that is on all the earth uh, will be given to the nation of the high holy ones. Notice, not to the high holy ones, but to the nation, the Am of Kadish Elyonim, an eternal kingdom, and the other rulers will worship it and obey it. Ad kosof ad ka sofa dimilta. Ana Daniel sagi rainoi vahalunani. Until here, the end of the words, and I, Daniel, 
my thoughts distressed me extremely, and the shine of my countenance changed, and I guarded these words in my heart or in my mind. Meaning, I think not so much that he kept them at the forefront of his thinking, but that he kept, he kept all of it as a secret, as we will see he is instructed to do.